production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today is Friday, February 3rd. I'm Jeff St. Clair, host and producer at IdeaStream Public Media. I'll be moderating today's forum, which is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series. I'm pleased to introduce Walt Bogdanich and Mike Forsyth, journalists with the New York Times and authors of their latest book, When McKinsey Comes to Town the hidden influence of the world's most powerful consulting firm. If you aren't familiar with the work of McKinsey & Company, chances are you are not alone. For almost a century, the global consulting firm has advised major corporations and governments, but it's not exactly known for sharing secrets. Fortune magazine once described McKinsey as the most secretive and, quote, the most disliked management consulting firm on earth. <laughs> In their new book, our guests pull back the curtain on the powerful consulting firm. And what they find is McKinsey's public image as a prestigious, values-driven company sits in stark contrast to the work it does behind closed doors. In their book, our speakers gathered tens of thousands of documents and conducted hundreds of interviews. They crafted a compelling narrative about a firm mired in secrecy. Today, we will learn more about the impact McKinsey has had on the banking industry, opioid manufacturers, authoritarian governments, oil companies, to name a few. Walt Bogdanich joined the New York Times in 2001. Previously, Walt worked at 60 Minutes, ABC News, and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he is the recipient of three Pulitzer Prizes. Mike Forsythe. <laughs> He joined the Times in 2014 after more than a decade at Bloomberg News and is also a veteran of the U.S. Navy, Mike Forsyth. If you have any questions for our guests, uh, feel free to text us, 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to uh, work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join us in welcoming Walt Bogdanich and Mike Forsythe. All right, let's start um, with a little bit of background. Uh, Walt, you are not a stranger to Cleveland. No, um, that uh, little bio that you read, I did not write. Uh, if I had, I mean, look, you can't, you know, you, got, you can only put so much in, you know, a certain space, but I work for quite a few years at the Cleveland Press and then at the Plain Dealer. So Cleveland is my adopted hometown. I, I consider myself a forever Clevelander and, and love it to death. So very happy to be back. And Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself, your experiences. You know, when people ask me where I'm from, it's like the hardest question I get. Uh, I was uh, an expat kid. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then my parents moved to Alaska for high school. Um, uh, Came back down to the, what we call the lower 48 for college, and then I joined the US Navy. 
uh, two tours in the Persian Gulf and made that very uh, common route from the Navy to journalism. Uh, <laughs> and uh, spent a lot of time in China, about eight years in Beijing, three years in Hong Kong, uh, and uh, six years in Washington. And for the last five or six years, I've been in New York uh, working with Walt. We'll make you an honorary Clevelander, <laughs> at least for today. Um, let's begin with, and I mentioned in the intro here that uh, you know not everyone is familiar with what McKinsey does. And let's start there. If you could describe uh, a little bit about the history of the company and what they do. Let me start with a short story. When I got out of college with a political science degree, I took the only job I could find, which was as a laborer in U.S. Steel in Gary, Indiana which was at, at one time the most profitable, biggest corporation in the world. Um, the moment I entered it, I knew I was in an alien world. It was so big, it was hard to even imagine. Uh, seven miles along the, the Michigan uh, uh, shoreline, two, two miles wide, 200 miles of railroad track, its own hospital, its own police force. It was, it was stunning. It was also very impenetrable and dangerous and the steel plant that we all remember, hopefully, from Mariupol that was being sheltering all the fighters and the civilians during the Russian attack, that was patterned. It was built using the specs from Gary, Indiana, that steel mill. So uh, when I worked there, it was dangerous, but not because Russians were dropping bombs. There were other reasons. Uh, and my first, my first summer there, two people died, one who was crushed you know, tons of steel fell on them. The other one was burned alive. And so it was, it was a rough go. Um, outside the gate, there's a Book of the Dead where, where more than 500 people um, are listed and uh, the way they died and their ages and their names. Um, so I, why am I telling you this story about Gary, Indiana and U.S. Steel? Because I later learned that McKinsey was a consultant for them. And in recent years, they went to help U.S. Steel join the, the modern world because they were getting their clocks cleaned by foreign competition. It was bad management. Uh, and the, the, the place was literally falling apart. So what did they do? They came in there and they had some plan that they called the Carnegie Way, which was um, a very a McKinsey way of, of approaching something. You've got to give it fancy titles. Carnegie, Carnegie was co-owner. Of, of the of the so anyhow, um, but the workers quickly saw through this Carnegie way going to transform the company as just a way to cut costs and lay people off, and one of the things they did was was cut maintenance, and soon people died. Um, two two people um, that I was looking at two two workers were electrocuted, um, citing the union said uh, uh, poor maintenance. It was similar to what happened. All, at Disneyland, which you couldn't find a, a diff more different company than that, um, where they came in and they cut costs um, and they, they cut uh, maintenance. But first they went around and interviewed the workers and they said, what, what do we need to know? And, and, and so they asked this one worker, who said, well, we looked at the records and there are no accidents involving the lap bars on these rides with little kids. And the guy says, there's a reason there's no accidents is because we inspect them every day. And, um, and that was the lesson that apparently, you know, McKinsey needed to hear. Um, when McKinsey comes to town, the title of our book, 
workers generally find themselves either with less pay, no job, the community may find themselves without uh, you know, the kind of economic structure that one would hope for, for a city. Um, why did we devote four years of our lives to writing about McKinsey? Because it's big, it's, it's uh, influential, and it's secretive. And that is catnip for investigative reporters. Um, so we were looking at them. Uh, you know, General Motors makes cars. McKinsey makes opinions. They don't make anything. Um, that's a good you know, way to have a good profit margin. You know, <laughs> not a whole lot of overhead. Um, so how big is it? Well, they, they, they have offices in 65 countries. They advise autocracy, kleptocracies, uh, you know, and everything in between. They are one of the most secretive companies in the world, as I mentioned. They advise the CIA, the FBI, the Pentagon, um, all manner of, of state agencies. Um, and secrecy is their business model, um, which means their employees from day one are told never to disclose their clients, what they tell them, how much they're paid. Um, they sign NDAs. Um, no one had ever been able to pierce that corporate veil. Mike and I thought it would be a challenge to do that. And I found Mike, and together we set out on our journey. And that led us to Cleveland. So <laughs> on, a, on a lovely day. Actually, I love the snow because it reminded me of my time here. So, well, Mike, I want to ask you a little bit about what got you started reporting on McKinsey. Well, Walt came over my desk one day and said, <laughs> can you help me look at this company? Um, that's a really, that's actually okay. the truth. And that's what happened. Um, you know, but as a reporter, and, and you know, I know, I, I understand there's a lot of uh, reporters out here today, you know, once you start looking at something, you're like, oh my God, you know, this, this is incredible. And I got sucked in. So, uh, you know, the, the, we started working on this, I started working on this with Walt in 2018, middle, beginning of the year. Uh, but Walt had been looking at this for a few years earlier because he was so interested in the idea of rising inequality in the United States and, and thought that it had been, you know, kind of cotton onto the fact that McKinsey might be one of the reasons for this widening inequality. And sure enough, if you read the book, uh, you know, it is, um, starting from about 1950. Um, but, uh, you know, when you start investigating, you know, you do get, you know, mentally engaged in it. And so our first story was about South Africa and the work that uh, McKinsey was doing there. Uh, and uh, it just involved in a really big corruption scandal there that actually brought down the last president. Uh, and McKinsey was right in the thick of it, had to apologize, pay back more than $100 million. Um, but that just led one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And here we are in Cleveland. It's an interesting book. I mean, um, uh, it, I have to admit, it's really difficult to read because I kept we finding myself, I know, yeah. like, can we cut that? <laughs> um, because I kept finding myself being outraged, you know, chapter after chapter in, uh, of, of seeing how uh, when McKinsey comes to town, mm -hmm. it, uh, you know, I think on the basis, maybe the Gary Indiana stories, that it's often uh, to cut workers. It's, you know, the work, it's easy to boost profits if that's the goal of the company. Uh, you know, McKinsey can easily consult them and say, well, you trim your workforce. In the, in the example of uh, Disney, you cut back on safety inspections, and, and in the book describes some of the problems that came from that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's important that we do know some of this stuff, and I thought we would talk about some of the specific examples of your mm -hmm. reporting um, of the influence that McKinsey's had over the years. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and there's one of the chapters uh, deals with um, the banking sector and some of the changes that McKinsey recommended, um, maybe back in the 60s and 70s, restructuring some uh, traditional banking practices, um, and then eventually introducing the idea of securitized debt. And let, if you don't mind, I mean, that might not be the most scintillating radio conversation, but its impact on us led up to the 2008 housing and crash, and the, you know, we, we came close to a world financial you know, collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Mike, if you would give in a little bit of mm-hmm. what role McKinsey had to play in, 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 this, in that story. Right. And I think you caught on to a really important idea. McKinsey's not just about going into a company and saying, you need to cut these workers and cut these workers and cut costs so you can boost profits. That's a big part of their business. But even more important, I think, in a lot of ways, it's a company about ideas, about propagating ideas. You know, and they've got the best Rolodex in the world. You know, they, they work with all the CEOs of all the major companies, not just in the United States, but around the world, with presidents, prime ministers. Uh, and so you know, starting back around 1950, they were involved in a big push to increase CEO pay, for example. Uh, in the 90s, they were pushing offshore to all their clients. So with securitization, what was going on is um, in the early 1980s, they were getting their clocks cleaned by this new competitors, Boston Consulting Group and Bain. They decided they needed to be more of a company of big ideas, and they, they latched onto this idea of securitization, which is where, you know, for example, and, you know, the one we all know about is housing, right? So a bank has a bunch of mortgages, and, and people are paying back those mortgages, and you know, you know that's, that's how it works. But if you take those mortgages and then you sell them you know, uh, to an entity, then that entity can issue you know, uh, bonds or you know, some sort of security on that that people buy. Then you can actually get your money back, and so you can make more mortgages. But it didn't just work for the mortgage industry. You could do this for credit cards. You can do this for auto loans. McKinsey didn't invent this idea. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were working on this back starting in the 1960s. Um, some big Wall Street banks like Salomon Brothers, uh, First Boston, these guys were, were doing this in the early 80s, but what, what McKinsey did is they wrote, they thought about this, they wrote about it, and then they propagated it to the rest of the banking industry back at a time you know, where you know, it, it was new. Uh, and they went and they built a business out of this to pass this information along. So McKinsey didn't cause the financial crisis in 2008. We're not saying they did this, but they, sp- they may have lit the match, right? They spread the idea. It's, it's really powerful. So they, they spread it around the world, um, preached the, you know, the gospel of securitization of assets to their global Rolodex of clients. And to know how well it worked, just look at Enron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which doesn't exist anymore. For a good reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whose uh, was CEO was a McKinsey Ex-McKinsey veteran. Ex-McKinsey guy. Right. Well, it, with, yeah. it just, the floors were filled with McKinsey consultants. They were running the place. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, um, there are a lot of consulting companies that make um, you know, recommendations for companies, and they play a very important role for industries. Maybe you need to outsource some management uh, um, you know, personnel and that sort of thing, they need help. But I suppose this book is about the influence that McKinsey, maybe an outsized influence that, that they have that leads to these, um, I don't know, sort of uh, maybe overwhelming uh, consequences. Uh, another example is in the uh, opioid crisis, Well. Yeah, I mean, um, we all know how devastating that crisis is. And we've read a lot about the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, 
we haven't read enough about McKinsey's role in that, which was huge. And, um, and what they did is they, they were egging on Purdue Pharma to sell more opioids in the middle of an epidemic, opioid epidemic, while people were dying by the thousands. Um, they were helping other opioid companies, which really hasn't been told. But what was significant, I mean, that's very significant in and of itself, and they ended up paying to settle government you know, investigations, paying more than $600 you know, million, which is sort of how McKinsey does business when they get in trouble. They pay a lot of money and make all the investigations go away. That's what they did in South Africa when they repaid $100 million to make it go away. But um, you know, one of the things that the backdrop of that and why that happened, in part, um, people have told us, is that uh, you know there's this conflict of interest with, involving McKinsey, where they represent, they advise all the major drug companies at the same time that they're advising their regulators, the Food and Drug Administration. Which, to any reasonable person who hears that, should say that's not how it should work. But you ask McKinsey about it, and they're very proud of it. And they say, we're very careful. We build these brick walls in between each partner who has. Now, they, 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 they don't acknowledge that this is a problem, and they should. Well, part of that, uh, that story, they, they were working with the FDA in, in the branch that looks at uh, problematic um, drug sales and um, you know, sort of the red flag division. They were, uh, McKinsey at the same time was advising uh, the regulator, the FDA, at, at the the same time advising Purdue Pharma to turbocharge sales of OxyContin. Um, so the, you, know, you don't have to look too far to see a conflict no, of interest. No, there. you don't. But I, I don't know whether I mentioned the actual numbers. It was like more than 20 of the world's major drug manufacturers, you know, McKinsey has advised. And you know, they advise not only the Food and Drug Administration, they advise you know, Health and Human Services, they advise health departments, they make a lot of money in the state of Ohio, as you may or may not know, involving COVID and other things. Um, so they are, what I like to, the way I describe it is they have, they're involved in every link in the healthcare delivery chain beginning with the drug makers and the pharmacists and the drug distributors and the doctors and the hospitals and, and the payers, the private insurers, the Medicaid, everything they're advising. They have their fingers in so many pies that you can't bake those pies quick enough. So uh, they're making a lot of money is the long and short of it in, in ways that should give us pause. Uh, just to kind of wrap up on that, I, what I think is interesting in some ways is that um, Instead of advising Purdue when, when the trouble started appearing with the, the opioid crisis and the addiction crisis, saying, why don't you pull back a little bit, maybe work on another drug platform, mm -hmm. or let's just wait this out. No, they said, let's maximize profits. And, and I'm sure that they're echoing what Purdue wanted at the time, I suppose, <laughs> which ended up destroying the company. Purdue settled $5.5 billion uh, as a payout you know, once the company was dissolved at the, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, that's before they. That's after they set aside ten billion dollars of their own for their own family, but I mean, it, it, it seems like the consulting work itself maybe not. It, it's not really benefiting the company if that's the outcome. So I mean, I think it's important to you know what were they doing you know for Purdue? Uh, they were consulting. We say we're consulting. Well, what does that mean? 
it's, you know, you've got to read the chapter because they really took Purdue's side here, thinking, how do we increase OxyContin sales? You know, we need to target these doctors. We need to target high prescri prescribing doctors. We need to reinvent our sales force. And then the things that they were thinking about when, when there was pushback from the government, when the government was trying to do its job, right? Well, right. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that to me was the most disturbing thing. When the federal government finally got its act together, quote unquote, and was taking all these steps to try and curb the epidemic, they were telling Purdue Pharma how to get around that. And they were talking about, well, let's set up our own independent distribution center, which will bypass the drugstores, which are now getting heat from the, the DEA and the, uh, and, and the law enforcement authorities. So well, I mean, this is the most prestigious consulting firm in the world. And, I, and, and we, it still is. Uh, I wish they'd read our book, but you know, <laughs> uh, I think they know where to find it. But you know, for them to be doing this, they hired the best people. And, and let me get this on the record. I know a lot of McKinsey consultants, and so does Mike. And, and they're good people. It's not an evil organization. It just it, it, it took some wrong steps, and it needs to correct them. But th there are people there that I consider my friends. And, and, and they, they want to do good. They're kind of trapped in an organization that doesn't necessarily think through enough what it does. Yeah, just an interesting uh, caveat from that uh, uh, work w with um, the OxyContin. They actually suggested that they reimburse the uh, um, retail pharmacy companies for every overdose person. One of the patients that overdosed, they would you know cut them a discount. Uh, the, that, was, that was one step too far, honestly. That was one that the, the uh, advice that the, the companies did not take. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's get one more example while we have time of, uh, from the book. Uh, and, uh, you know, the big story today, there's a balloon, a Chinese balloon <laughs> floating over the United States um, uh, that has some people concerned. But uh, McKinsey has nothing to do with that. <laughs> we don't think. that we. Yeah, I don't think they advised the Chinese to, to launch the balloon. But... I'm not um, sure about that. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you've done quite a bit of reporting uh, on uh, McKinsey's involvement with uh, Chinese state-owned industries and some of the work that they've done. And, and um, let's, I'd like to hear a little bit about that, what, you know, some of the examples from the book. Okay. You all are about to get the fastest sea story you've ever heard. All right. Usually ex-Navy people, when they do sea <laughs> stories, you know, sit down, strap up, it's going to yeah, be an hour. Or so. Yeah, we're good to go. So there I was, there I was, there I was. In 1994, I was in Manila. I was a navigator on a guided missile cruiser, and uh, we were set to transit the South China Sea to go to the island of Borneo. Uh, and uh, so we did, and I was a navigator. Now, so it's my job to make sure we didn't run aground, uh, that I would lose my job, and so would the captain if we did. And it was nighttime, uh, I was on the bridge, and we have a fathometer, shows you how much water's under the keel. And there was not a lot of water under that keel. It was scary, uh, and, and as I was looking at the chart, and I was looking at the fathometer, and I was like, you know, wait a second, you know, we've got a sonar dome there. It could hit bottom any minute, and that's pretty much it for me and the captain, you know. And uh, we made it to make a short story long, or long story short, we made it to, to port, and we were fine. The point is that that was my biggest worry in the South China Sea in 1994. My biggest worry was how much water was under the keel. These days, a navigator on a U.S. ship in the South China Sea, I feel bad for them because they have a whole mess of worries. Because there's these new islands in the South China Sea, right, that are militarized by China. Um, and there's Chinese Coast Guard, Chinese Navy ships everywhere harassing U.S. ships and other ships, you know, other allied ships uh, in the region. 
It's tense. Uh, furthest thing from my mind in 1994, but these days in 2023, it's a big deal. So the world learned about this, for sure, that the Chinese were militarizing these islands that they just made out of, out of sand that they dredged from the floor. Um, the, really, the day that it happened was September 25th, 2014. That's when uh, Jane's Defense Weekly reported about these airstrips that were being built on one of these reefs, former reefs, now big island called Fiery Cross Reef. That very same day, 2,000 miles to the north in Beijing, there was a meeting of the company that actually owned the dredgers that were building those islands in Beijing. And this company is a state-owned company in China called China Communications Construction. The state-owned company meaning the CEO is appointed by the Organization Department of the Communist Party. Uh, it is an instrument of Chinese state power. So it's not a company in the sense of a company that we think of. Um, and McKinsey was there advising them on strategy. McKinsey, an American company created in 1926 in Chicago, Illinois, whose business model and organization is based on a law firm in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, this company, an American company, is advising a Chinese state-owned company that is building islands in the South China Sea. How did we get there? And it turns out that the, you know, McKinsey, over the decades, you know, as many American companies did, went into China. You know, GM and Ford went there too. They made a lot of money. It makes sense that McKinsey would go there to advise companies. Boy, they needed, they needed American advice. They really did back in the 80s and 90s and into the you know, 20th century, and they got it. But McKinsey stayed and doubled down and started working more and more with you know, these Chinese state-owned companies uh, to the point where you know, because it's a decentralized company like a law firm, um, the partners there had thought that uh, it was perfectly okay to have a big company retreat in Xinjiang, in the city of Kashgar, you know, in Western China. Uh, this would have been in September 2018. And uh, I heard about this, and uh, we got a map of the detention camps because you might know that. China at the time was detaining over a million uh, you know, ethnic Uyghurs in that area. And it just turns out that just a few thousand yards away from their party was one of these detention centers. And but to, to finish the story about the dredging, at the same time McKinsey was advising that, they were also advising the Pentagon, mm -hmm. uh, which really had a different view of those islands. I just to, yeah, it sure to, did. To yeah. complete I mean, the circle important. there. And it's an idea, it's kind of a conflict of interest, kind of like with the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies on a global scale. The idea that McKinsey is advising these state-owned companies that are building these islands, and at the same time, actually a much bigger client is, is, is the Pentagon that is very worried about these islands. Uh, it gives you an idea of the global reach of McKinsey and, and just the thorny mess that it's getting into. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to say it's been, it's a, a symbol of the success of the company that uh, the, the Chinese state-owned industries would find their advice that valuable. Mm -hmm. I, when reading the book, I began thinking, well, this is just a story of you know, corporate America gone wrong or whatever, but it's beyond that. Um, it's not only been McKinsey has influenced you know, the, the capitalist landscape over the past century or so, um, but they're uh, influencing state-owned companies across the world in different ways, um, often that are not in the U.S.'s interest. But I suppose that's, they're doing their job as a consulting firm. You end the book in an interesting way saying, saying uh, there are certain industries, maybe you know, doctors have to take an oath, to do no harm. 
journalists, our number one ethical you know, creed is to do, do no harm. There is nothing of that equivalent uh, in the corporate consulting firm, and, and maybe there should be. I, look, there are times I want to cause harm. I've got to be honest right. with you. <laughs> That's why I'm an investigative reporter for 40 years, and, and I'm proud to say it caused a lot of harm. <laughs> which which was needed. So that's how you get. I, look, I well, know you your point. Afflict the comfortable and comfort yeah, the afflicted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I, I'm only being a little bit of a wise guy, but you, you know what I'm saying. I, I I do take your point. Yeah. Well, I think that's. Uh, we're going to go to questions now. Um, so uh, for the radio audience, we are uh, about to begin the audience Q and A. I am, once again, I'm Jeff St. Clair, host and producer at IdeaStream Public Media, and uh, we are speaking with New York Times journalist Walt Bogdanich, Bogdanich and uh, Mike Forsyth. Uh, we're talking about their book, When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. And we are opening it up uh, to questions from anyone uh, here at the City Club, uh, including City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream online at cityclub.org or on uh, over the air at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. So if you'd like to tweet a question, uh, you can tweet it, uh, once again, at The City Club. Text to 330-541-5794. Uh, the number 330-541-5794. And the City Club staff is uh, walking around with microphones. They're going to answer your texts and your tweets. And if we have anyone um, ready to ask the, the first question here. Good afternoon. Um, I'm wondering if uh, the ills of which you speak of are a product of McKinsey's consulting or the direction they get from the corporations that hire them. I don't know how many corporations hire McKinsey and say, let's raise the, the living standard of our workers. <laughs> um, We're still looking for that. <laughs> and that was That's book the, two. The second part of my question was, do you find in the consulting world a model of a socially responsible consultant that would not do the things that you're suggesting that McKinsey does? Mike, take that away. <laughs> um, I think I'll ask, you know, the second part of the question first. You know, McKinsey does have a model for it, actually. They, they do allow their junior consultants to opt out of work. Or they allow all their consultants to opt out of work that they find, you know, morally questionable. And this has been the case for decades. Uh, so, for example, a lot of consultants uh, for McKinsey, they don't want to work for tobacco. And McKinsey doesn't work for big tobacco anymore. They stopped in 2021. Uh, um, you know, or, or for, um, you know, big pharma or for uh, coal, you know, or, you know, fossil fuel industry. The problem with that, though, is, is it puts the ethical decision, the, the ethical burden on usually the junior consultants who are, who are opting out. Um, um, you know, McKinsey talks a good game about being ethical. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and a lot of times there are gray areas, you know, on what is ethical and what is not, you know. Um, but uh, I guess as a journalist, the simplistic thing is, you know, you know, you know unethical things when you see it, you know. How would it look on the front page of the, you know, the New York Times or the Cleveland Plain Dealer? Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's a way for them to operate a lot more ethically. It will mean that they will get less revenue. Um, definitely, they're going to have to give up some some areas, uh, and and they certainly have. McKinsey certainly has. Yeah, one uh, change they could make is um, they have this long list of values that they they pound into the brains of every new hire. The first value is you know client interest first. 
Well, maybe not in some cases. Maybe it should be c community first. It should be you know humanity first. I mean, um, if the client wants to do bad things, you should not do them. And and I think that needs McKinsey's grappling with that. Um, so I mean, they did change their policy of hiring. Um, you know, of working for certain clients to do a better job of vetting. Whether that's going to pan out in the long run, who knows. I will say that um, we, we have been told multiple times that McKinsey has asked uh, employees not to read the book. So that's not, yeah. that's not a good step forward yeah. in, in reform. Right. Um, what, are you, what are you afraid of? You know, yeah, there's yeah, nothing yeah. in here, you know? I, I do want to answer the first part of your question, though, because I don't want to leave, you know, so... Yes, it's usually McKinsey doing the bidding of the client, right? That's the problem. That's why we wrote the book, though, because when you get these brilliant people, and there really are brilliant people at McKinsey, uh, they do a good job of hiring really smart people, working tirelessly at helping a client that may not be the best ethical actor. That's a real problem. You know, it's, you've got this SWAT team of brilliant people uh, you know, working on, on, on a problem to maybe sell more OxyContin, for example. And that, you know, 90% of McKinsey, you know, a lot, most McKinsey work you never hear about, and it's not controversial. Um, that's not what we wrote about here. The, you know, we wrote about the many, many problems. Good afternoon. Because policies based upon McKinsey influence seem to drive broad systemic action, where do you think they will go in this time of population decline? What? wherever there's money. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, th they moved overseas. Uh, I mean, that's why they, they, they went overseas, because in the past they didn't do it. They didn't do government work. And they're increasingly doing government work now, which is a huge problem, because government shouldn't be outsourcing its responsibilities to private companies, because they're not accountable. When we file freedom of information requests to get information on, on contracts that private company, that McKinsey has with government agencies, we get a lot of redacted pages. They won't, they won't disclose who's working on the contract. They won't disclose what they did. Um, that's wrong. There needs to be accountability. And, and it has to be, the society has to ask itself, do we want governments to outsource their responsibilities that we pay you, that they're supposed to be using taxpayer money to accomplish. Right. I would say also that, uh, you know, if the population's de declining, that's a problem. And maybe McKinsey will think of, you know, a business line to sell advice to all sorts of companies and governments. How do you grow profits in a population decline? Or, you know, how do you, you know, keep your government going with a declining population? How do you make do more you do? babies? Yeah. So we'll it, charge you $10 billion for that advice. Might be pretty lucrative for them. Another question? We're doing microphone maintenance here, so I'll just... No, Tom, hold on. Let's go there. Okay. Hi. First, a comment. I shame on the U.S. government, the Pentagon, the FDA, that they cannot find another consulting firm. They should be able to figure out that McKinsey is playing both sides, so what up with the federal government? But um, my question is, did you find any um, sense of a cultural change that might be starting from the ground up? I'm the mother of young 20s, and 
Um, I know personally the story of one young man who did become an employee of McKenzie and one that was crestfallen because he went through all, like, three interviews, um, really tough, and did not get it. And this is still for bright minds coming out of college. The, you know, the apex of your job coming out of college. So with our young people being more globally conscious, more environmentally conscious, is there a slight hope? Did you get that sense that some of these kids might be able to uh, bring some better conscience they, they, they already to are. Mike will tell you a little bit about it, but I wanted to make one point that I think, in fairness, in the Cleveland McKenzie office, there is someone who is a hero, in my view, because he stood up to the others who were, who were pushing the opioids, and he, he was outraged by it. Um, I was outraged because he never returned my phone call, <laughs> but, but that's his right. But I still admire him because it takes people like that to stand up and fight, you know, when they see something that isn't right. Um, and and you're, you're absolutely, there's, there is a big difference, you know, young people these days, you know. They are much, I, I, do, I think it's a generalization, but they are much more idealistic and we would not have been able to write this book had it not been for some people in their 20s who were at McKinsey uh, who came to us. They had been reading about McKinsey's work with uh, immigration customs enforcement, you know, or, um, or with, you know, with opioid, with Purdue. They were upset and they came to us and they, uh, we, we got some amazing, amazing stuff from them that I don't think, Walt, we would have been able to write this book without him. Mm -hmm. It's a different generation. I, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I, I think we were far more cynical when we were young uh, than young people are now. That, and that may be a generalization. It's pop sociology on my part, but I think there's something to it. They really are idealistic, and we're so grateful that they came to us. Uh, and, and, you know, hey, if you get, in, get a job at McKinsey, you know, congratulations. You're, you know, you're a smart person, and hopefully when you're there, you can act ethically and, and make the organization better. Keep it up, 20-somethings. <laughs> <laughs> Another question? And applaud both of you for writing this uh, oh, magnificent book. Um, so a question, both of you made some reference to McKinsey's uh, roots from a, a Cleveland law firm, and I think Walt, you referenced uh, its involvement in Ohio. Could you both elaborate on those connections here? Uh, McKinsey does have its own office in Cleveland, I believe, so could you talk a little bit about the connection between McKinsey and Cleveland and McKinsey's role with Ohio government, Ohio corporations now? Do you want to take Marvin Bauer's story? Uh, a little bit. So, so. Um, Kind of a son of Cleveland, Marvin Bauer uh, was the you know if the the name of the company is McKinsey, right? It's James O. McKinsey. He died a young man, uh, and I think it was 1938. Uh, and right after he axed about a thousand jobs from yeah. Marshall Fields, yeah. and and set McKinsey careening in in the wrong direction. Um, but then 
you know, Marvin Bauer came about. Right. So Marvin Bauer was a, a man of high ethics, uh, had uh, gone to Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School, gotten a job at, was working at Jones Day here in Cleveland. Uh, and this would have been in the 19, early. You've heard of them, right? Yeah, heard of this, yeah. In the early 1930s. Uh, but then he came to McKinsey, started working at McKinsey in 1933. Uh, he lived to be almost 100 years old, uh, died in 2003. He was born in 1903, and uh, he is the father of the company, basically. He organized the company like a law firm. It's called a firm. McKinsey, they call themselves a firm, even though it's McKinsey and Company. Uh, you know, there's partners, uh, there's a practices. It's, it's, it's like that. So it's, it's got the Joan, you know, his idea of being a law firm, you know, and this came from his Jones Day experience uh, here in Cleveland. Uh, yeah. I mean, as in most states, they have found a way to worm into state government. And they've got tons of work on, on COVID-related issues, um, mostly without any oversight. One of the things that I found deeply troubling when I'm looking through records of McKinsey's contracts is they got most of them without bidding. And I'm not talking just about the COVID. I'm talking about you go to a poor state like Arkansas where they got $100 million in contracts and didn't bid on one of them. So when you're that close to government um, and you have connections, there was, I'll just say this real quickly, there was a, a, a briefing book that was given to, to new, new recruits in which a senior partner was advising them to get in the door and then spread like an amoeba. And, and, and then become a Trojan horse. And basically you check in, but you don't check out. Sort of like, I guess, Hotel California. Uh, and, and, but that's how, you know, they burrow in and they don't leave. Another question? Yes, um, uh, is the mic on? Okay, yes. um, congratulations on this amazing book. Um, I read about half of it and my cardiologist called and said, <laughs> take it easy, your blood pressure's doing white caps. And I did cut to the end uh, this week when I knew I'd be coming for a solutions section. Mm -hmm. And sadly, um, your epilogue was great about your processes, but I just wondered what should we do with our outrage? And I wanna bring it back to my beloved hometown McKinsey has provided some great civic leadership in this town, and we're also down a big bank called National City because they got addicted to mortgage-backed mortgage, mortgage -backed securities. Mm -hmm. So we've experienced firsthand the yin and the yang of McKinsey's influence here, but it, it does bother me that, you know, if it's a bunch of lawyers, at least there's the canons of ethics and then do no harm. I don't see a lot of hope for government regulation, so what should we do with our outrage? Thank you. Well, we're not editorial writers. Um, I have a good friend who writes you know, opinions, Brent Larkin here. Uh, maybe I'll toss that over to him. But uh, we, we, we need to demand accountability. We need to demand transparency. Um, easy to say, um, but that's all we can do. Uh, no, there isn't a solutions section to the book. Um, why not, Mike? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you said you were not confident that government could do anything, and you know, you may be right there, but uh, I think, you know, there are some things that even as a journalist I'm comfortable saying as opinions that, you know, it would be really great if, uh, if you're getting a government contract, if you're working with the FDA, that you have to disclose your conflicts of interest. People at the FDA had no idea 
that McKinsey was consulting for the tobacco companies they regulated or the pharmaceutical companies they regulated. They just didn't know. Or the vaping. Or yeah, vape interests. Yeah. Hello. Um, so I'm a recent college graduate, and one of the parts of your book that resonated with me was this idea of these young recruits that are like bright-eyed and are maybe aware of the moral complications involved, but think like I can be the one to change it from the inside, or like it's better for me to have this job than someone who doesn't care. Um, and after reading the book, I sort of feel that it isn't super justifiable to have that <laughs> attitude. What would you say to that at this point? I would say, you know, you gotta believe that there's good in everybody and organizations can be changed and turned around. I mean, if, if you believe in the world of consulting and what it does and there is a value in it, um, McKinsey, I should point out, full disclosure, advises the New York Times and the Washington Post, <laughs> tell, telling each one how to beat the other. That's how they do business. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always, you know, there's always room for good people to change things. There, it, it is within your power, mm -hmm. you know, so don't be too cynical like us. <laughs> no, we're, we're not cynical, but uh, only a little bit. <laughs> Hello, and um, congratulations on your book. Um, what do you feel was the most challenging aspect of writing the book, seeing as McKinsey is a really big and powerful company? Were you afraid of any retaliation from them? Oh, always good to be afraid. Makes you careful. And we were very careful. McKinsey made us very afraid. Um, not for anything that they said. We had a cordial relationship with them. Um, it still do, I think. You know, they, so, um, I don't know, Mike, you know. I was very afraid. <laughs> I was, it, it was so afraid that, you know, the book, so the book came out October 4th and, and you know, I, I wasn't feeling, oh my God, I can't wait till the book comes out. I was like, oh my God. They're going to see something. They're going to find a mistake. And, you know, I, we went through it, you know, nine ways to Sunday. There's 1,200 footnotes in there. We're very careful. But I guess, you know, that's the nature of our job is, you know, and, and you don't want to get cocky and, and careless and be confident, you know. As it, I think perpetual insecurity is a, probably a good trait for an investigative hey, journalist. Hey, look, you know, full, again, full disclosure, I was once sued for $12, $10 billion dollars. That's more than most of you have here. <laughs> I had it, fortunately, so it wasn't a problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm a journalist. They pay us lots of money. But uh, it, it, was a, it was a crooked tobacco company, and they wanted to shock everybody and keep them from uh, reporting on it. And I ended up not paying them a penny. And they ended up having to pay more than $200 billion to settle lawsuits. So the score, scoreboard was, was in my favor at the end. Hi. Um, it seems to me there's an awful lot of national security implications with this company. Could you talk about that a little bit? Or they might become an arm of our security. Maybe we're responsible for balloons over China. It's, uh, they're everywhere, right? McKinsey is everywhere. Um, so they've advised the CIA uh, and the FBI. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as I know, they have not advised the Chinese military, the, the military itself. They have now, so McKinsey has some guardrails that they've put up since we've started reporting. You know, they have pledged 
that they will not advise the defense ministries, the interior ministries, or the justice ministry. And the interior ministries in most countries, is, it's, it's not national parks, right? It's, it's the police, right? Or the justice ministries, you know, of any country that scores below, there's very McKinsey, scores below a certain score on this, you know, governance test. You know, in other words, autocracies, um, you know, uh, like China, like Saudi Arabia. So they say they don't do that. Um, but they do advise companies that work with those ministries and everything. And since they don't disclose their clients, now Walt and I were fortunate enough to get a list of clients. Um, so for example, in Saudi Arabia, they don't advise the Justice Ministry or the Interior Ministry, but they do advise a company that advises that ministry. Uh, now you wouldn't know that except we had their client list. But, if you, if, but that's not public. So there needs to be a lot more transparency so that we can you know, determine these things. No one in government has it. We were the only ones pretty proud of that, right, Mike? Yeah, we're pretty proud. Yeah. So, uh, but that allowed us to, to show the conflicts of interest, um, and, and that was really an important part of the book. So we have a text question here. Uh, artificial intelligence is a new initiative given McKinsey's past and the potential of AI for good and evil, what are your concerns regarding McKinsey's involvement? I, I mean, they, if you look on the McKinsey, like they, they, they pound you like, you know, minute after minute with, with emails if you sign up and we're signed up for everything, you know, like, <laughs> boy, we get it all. And, um, and it's AI this and AI that. But, um, you know, McKinsey latches on to the new big thing, you know, and, and they, they want to make money out of it, make a business model out of it. Uh, and I don't know how, you know, McKinsey's going to make a lot of money on it, but I'm sure they figured it out. Uh, but, but is McKinsey in there, you know, with, you know, people, technicians they hired from Google? Probably not. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't thought about, you know, what the implications are for McKinsey being in the AI field, but certainly they're, they're right. They're, they're talking a lot about it. Another question? So what motivated you guys to write this book? That's a good question. Um, well, I was concerned about inequality and how it was tearing apart the country and turning, you know, neighbors against neighbors and sections of the country against sections of the country. And it was, it was, you know, the middle class was disappearing, and, and I benefited from the middle class. My father worked in the steel mill, and back then, I mean, it, was a good, it was a good work. So I wanted to know more about whether this secretive company that I'd heard of, I didn't know what they did, other than I had a few friends who went to work for them and wouldn't talk to me about what they were doing. I should say ex-friends, but uh, no, I, I mean, I can have friends that went over there. So I, I wanted to know. I mean, they're, they're big, uh, as I learned, secret, secretive and powerful and, uh, you know, catnip for investigative reporters. And that's what, when there's some, people not wanting to talk, that, I mean, that's kind of a, 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 like waving a red uh, whatever in front of a bull. It's interesting that uh, the book is, is, in a lot of ways, a history of um, America uh, told from uh, the, the perspective of, of shifting uh, corporate philosophies um, and the impact generation to generation, uh, starting with the idea of CEO salaries back in the 50s, in some ways the inequality that you're talking about um, when McKinsey advised a certain company to, you know, the, 
this CEO is making this much, why aren't you making this? It became a race, uh, you know, comp competition that we're seeing today. Yeah, they were concerned that the workers' uh, pay was catching up to the executive pay. Um, <laughs> that's how it was in 1950. And, uh, and so uh, they commissioned Corporations commissioned to study to McKinsey to look at the salary structures and and to, to reach some conclusions about about that and and that led to all the, this advice on different ways for you know CEOs to make more money through stock options and all the financial machinations. Yeah, it was a very attractive idea for yeah. CEOs who were hiring these consultants. You know. Uh, and uh, you know it's something that we just take for granted nowadays, but uh, it was you know it was advice that was given uh, a couple generations ago. Um, I think we're wrapping things up pretty quickly. We have uh, one more question. Uh, I find myself wondering if you're going to make a career or a series out of this, and are the big four next? Uh, will we hear when EY comes to town? And well. McKinsey is certainly the largest by scale. I wonder if you could maybe share a little bit of your thoughts on how the, the big four also are very similar to how McKinsey operates. Ernst and Young. Yeah. Uh, who are the big four? Right. So, I, I mean, actually, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to actually look at, you know, the, we, we've been talking a lot about McKinsey, and, and I think McKinsey looks, actually fits more in the subset of the elite management you know, consultants, which is MBB, so McKinsey, Boston Consulting, and Bain. Uh, you know, EY, Accenture, you know, PwC, Deloitte, they're much bigger. Um, and a lot of times the work they do is actually on a lower level, you know, I'm not going to say widgets, you know, but it's, it, it, sometimes it is. Um, and McKinsey's a little bit higher up in the class. They're management consultants, you know, not to say that the other ones aren't, but, um, a lot, you know, we, we, we wrote a book about McKinsey. We did it because they're the biggest, uh, they're the, the, the biggest among those three and the most famous. They say they're the best, uh, certainly a name you, you recognize. They're, they hire brilliant people. Uh, I started making a list of Rhodes Scholars here at McKinsey. I had to stop. It was just, it just got so long. The current head of McKinsey is a Rhodes Scholar. Um, the guy a couple of months before him was a Rhodes Scholar. Amazing, you know, talent. Uh, and um, yes, the other consulting firms, though, do some similar work, which we wrote a little bit about in the book. Uh, we've also written about in the Times. There's, there's definitely similarities in the way clients are picked. Um, but McKinsey's the alpha dog, and McKinsey kind of sets the tone. And I think that's why we focused on them. Anything else? Well, yeah. I mean, I love. You know, it's it's a worldwide corporation, and we get we get you know reviews and people writing about it all over the place. I just read this this morning from Australia. Forget Stephen King or Edgar Allan Poe. If it's a really scary book you're after, bolt your doors, lock your windows, and curl up under the covers with a copy of When McKinsey Comes to Town. <laughs> the McKinsey in question is not a bloodthirsty psychopath, but an international consulting firm. And if you've never heard of them, well, unless you're rich and gullible, that's just the way they like it. <laughs> it's quite one lesson. It's corporate slogan should be, our business is none of your business. Oh. <laughs> On that note, we'd like to thank Walt Bogdanich and Mike Forsyth for joining the Cleveland City Club today. Thank you so much. Hey, great job.
Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, today's forum is part of the Authors in Conversation series in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, the John P. Murphy Foundation, and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. The City Club is grateful for all your support. We'd also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by Capital Partners, Cuyahoga Community College, Fairport Wealth, the Ohio CPA Foundation, and Wycliffe High School. Thank you all for being here today. And next Thursday, February 9th, my idea stream colleague Mike McIntyre uh, is sitting down with Ted Ginn, Sr., Executive Director of the Ginn Academy and Head Football Coach of the newly crowned state champ, the Glenville Tarblooders. And then Friday, February 10th, the City Club is welcoming Sarah, Sarah Echohawk. She's CEO of the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, the nation's leading organization representing Native Americans in science, technology, and innovation fields. And she'll be in conversation with the City Club's own Director of Programming, Cynthia Connolly. Tickets are still available for each of these forums. You can purchase tickets and learn more online at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Walt and Michael. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Jeff St. Clair. This forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or other podcasts at the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.